Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Lathan. This is episode 107. The small settlement of Port Natal had hardly grown by 1830. Dingan had moved his Nkanda, which he named Mgungutlovu, to the Emakosini Valley, close to Sigunyama, or Lion Hill, just south of the White Mfalosi River. The traders around Port Natal by now had mostly married Khoikhoi, or Amazulu women, and were part of the Zulu landscape. But by 1834, colonial authorities were going to become far more interested in this part of southern Africa. By now, Charles McLean, aka John Ross, was in his late teens. He'd arrived as a nine-year-old. Thomas Halstead had arrived as a 14-year-old in 1825, and he also lived close to the port. Also, there were John Kane, Nathaniel Isaacs, and Henry Ogle. Only one dwelling in the port looked vaguely European. The fort and none had what could be called furniture. Most of the structures were the Zulu beehive design, and the traders wore a combination of Zulu costumes and basic garments, sewn from skins with homemade straw hats. The whites, as I said, had taken local wives or concubines, known as Izitkaibe. The traders had paid Lobolo for the woman, handing over goods and cattle to the bride's father to pay him for the loss of labor in the family unit because it was the woman who did most of the work in Amazulu society. The traders set up their Zulu wives around their main homes, just as the Zulu did, conforming to the Umuzi circle of huts around the main homestead. Henry Francis Finn and Henry Ogle had large numbers of wives. The settlers around the port had drawn the local people into their circle of power, and the Zulu kings regarded these settlers as chiefs and extracted tributes from them. When these traders arrived, game was teeming around Port Natal, but they shot these out quite quickly. Finn, Kane, and Ogle in particular were known as big game hunters, and these three and their retainers were responsible for exterminating the elephant, the rhino, and the hippo from the rivers and bush close to the Port of Natal. The settlers trained the Khoisan and the Zulu retainers in the use of muskets. So the shooting parties moving through the bush emptied the felt of all animals within a few months. Then they'd move on. The African retainers took to the use of firearms rapidly, something that the British would regret later. By now, Dingaan had rid himself of most of the senior chiefs who could challenge his rule, and had also decreed that the southern boundaries of his territory should end at the Imzumkulu River. He was suspicious of the traders' motives, but he also knew there were vital links to the British authorities in the Cape. The Zulu king wanted to open new negotiations with Governor Sir Lowry Cole and chose trader John Kane, whom he called Jana, to head a new diplomatic mission to the British authorities. If you remember, Shaka had done the same with very little success. Kane set off in late 1830 on an overland trip and arrived in Grahamstown from Port Natal in November of that year. He ran slap-bang into the new Henry Somerset-dominated expansionism, and the authorities in Grahamstown were non-committal in dealing with Kane and Dingaan's emissaries. Dingaan had said he wanted to live in peace and harmony with the British, but his own internal political pressure meant he continued a Shaka-style pillaging and looting to keep his core Indunas happy. 
Dingaan was very careful and kept his impis out of the Cape and its frontiers, but he was determined that those within his sphere of influence would succumb to his power. Eventually, the disappointed John Kane returned to Zululand to face a furious Dingaan after failing to convince the British to parley with the new Zulu regent. A few months later, in April 1831, Dingaan ordered one of his impis to seize Kane's cattle as punishment. The Port Natal settlers reacted in terror, taking to the bush to hide from the MP, although Dingaan had given orders that none should be killed. They didn't know this. Northeast of Dingaan's great place was Kwa Matawani, or Execution Hill, named after Chief Matawani of Ngwani. When missionary Francis Owen built his home, it was a short distance away from Execution Hill, and you'd often write about the vultures circling over the bodies thrown from the cliff. Dingaan would pronounce a verdict in the company of his chiefs and principal men, while the executioners, armed with knobbed clubs, would await their orders. The condemned were made to walk to this hill, the executioners following. Upon arriving at the spot, the condemned were clubbed to death, and their bodies were left in the open to be eaten by the vultures during the day, by the hyenas by night. The traders regarded Dingaan as unpredictable and bellicose and the Zulu as a destabilizing element in southeastern Africa. But it was the arrival of an American schooner off the beach of Port Natal that was to cause the British far more consternation than what Dingaan was up to. Cape Governor Sir Lowry Cole received a report that the Americans had been trading with the Zulu and seemed to be the vanguard of a possible attempt at seizing this area for themselves. Cole wrote to the colonial office saying, how embarrassing such a neighbor might eventually prove to the Cape. It was at this point that he dreamed up a scheme that he wanted a person he could trust to head off to ascertain the real wishes of Dingon as well as the nature and capabilities of the country. John Kane's diplomacy had been ignored, but now Cole became extremely interested in Port Natal. The problem was, None of the British officials in Grahamstown or Cape Town trusted any of the European traders in Natal. They had spent the last six years backstabbing each other as they jostled for the role of main mediator with the Zulus, so he turned to Scottish assistant staff surgeon at the Cape Garrison, Dr. Andrew Smith. And it just so happens that I have a copy of Smith's notes and those written down by German brothers who were going to travel with the Scotsmen. Smith had already undertaken an official mission up the coast between 1828 and 1829, a scientific exploration. He had written to Governor Cole seeking support for another extensive expedition into the interior, saying it was vital to extend knowledge of what lay within. Furthermore, he wrote grandiosely, it was time to introduce what he called the barbarous minds to the advantage of Western civilization. It was also important for the British to leverage the interests. Great benefit could come from commerce and agriculture. It's a great mystery, however, what exactly Cole said to Smith, because the governor gave this Scots doctor verbal instructions. That, of course, has set off a great deal of hypothesizing and speculation, not least by Percival Kirby, who wrote the introduction to the publication of the notes in 1955. Smith's trip was more about intelligence gathering than scientific endeavour. There are few official expeditions in the history of South Africa about which less is known than that of Dr. Andrew Smith's visit to Dingaan in 1832. 
The real motive for the expedition was never outlined, and it's a black hole in the South African archives, as well as the public record office in London. No official report exists. Well, let's try and unravel this mystery. Smith spent a great deal of time convincing everyone he met that he was undertaking this scientific examination of the region. Even the dates of his visit had been misstated, not least by one of South Africa's earliest historians, George McCall Teal, who said that Smith visited Dingaan in 1834. He was a whole two years out. The reason why I'm spending a lot of time on this is because Smith's verbal report to Sir Lowry Cole was going to help change the history of Southern Africa. Before Smith and Cole, Zululand was a footnote in the British Empire. After these two individuals, Port Natal loomed large. It was going to lead all the way to the First Anglo-Zulu War of 1879 and the First Boer War during the same period. It was going to bring the British right up to the expanding German and Portuguese settlements during the scramble for Africa in the second half of the 19th century. There was no route to follow from the Cape to Port Natal in the 1830s. The only rude trail had been blazed by early 19th century missionaries and a few stray travellers, then followed up in 1829 by Andrew Gettysbane. Between the Mtata River and the Mzumvubu River, there was no settlers. The next wave of travellers, including the trekkers, were going to use Smith's map that he published shortly after arriving back in the Cape. It's now that we meet the Germans, Karl Friedrich Dreige and his brother Johann Franz. They combined the occupations of itinerant apothecary and professional museum collector, and they were in the Eastern Cape on the 10th of December 1831 when they heard about Smith's expedition. Smith was in Port Elizabeth. They were in Utenhag and requested permission to join him on his overland trip to Zululand. Smith agreed, and the Dreige brothers spent four days in Algoa Bay buying supplies for the journey, then on the 19th of December set off for Grahamstein to call on the Civil Commissioner for Albany to grant them permission to proceed over the border. But smallpox had broken out at Theopolis Mission Station, the London Missionary Society's outpost, and they were denied a certificate to travel. Eventually, Smith interceded, and they were allowed north, and meeting up with Smith's party at noon on the 10th of January, shortly after he left Grahamstown. From their journals and notes, and Smith's, we have pieced together bits of important information about the trip to visit Dingaan, and this trip influenced the course of history in a number of ways. Critically, one of the men travelling with Smith was Hermanus Barry, the son of an English father and a Dutch mother. He was so enthralled by the green slopes of Zululand, he called it the Garden Colony, and wrote, Almighty, I have never in my life seen such a fine place. I shall never again reside in the colony if the English government makes this a drosti. Just for clarification, a drosti is the office or residence of a landrost, or a magistrate or an administrative district. Barry's descriptions were to reach the ears of the famous Ace family, who were going to be so important in the coming great trek of Afrikaners, who were going to head off in search of the promised land. Many of the trekkers would follow Barry and Smith's route almost exactly. Upon Smith's return in the next year, 190 merchants and important citizens of Cape Town were going to draw up and sign a document for His Majesty the King and Council, petitioning that steps should be taken to set up a government establishment at Port Natal. 
When Smith's expedition of six wagons departed in January 1832, it was not the best time to head overland in an ox wagon, as he pointed out in a letter to the Gramstown Journal published later in August. They will find that the road between the Mzimfubu and Natal offers much at any time to try the patience, but that it is particularly harassing if travelled during the rainy season, namely between September and April. He advised future travellers to attempt this only during May to August. Some days saw him travel seven miles in two and a half hours, often trading with the Amatkosa as he went. Yellow ball buttons and thick brass wire were the articles which procured us most readily the supplies we required, these supplies being grains and meat. Some desired beads, but they were so particular as to their tints and shapes that it was scarcely possible to please them, and hence we found all but those which were in exact accordance with the fashion of the moment of but little value. The Matosa wanted to barter their milk, millies, pumpkins, spinach, and other vegetables for knives and tinderboxes. On the 11th of January, Smith's party descended towards the Kaiskama River. Almost two months later, they were crossing the Nzumvubu. That's the river that flows past Port St. John's. The Nzumvubu, which is a large river, was flooded from inland rains, and after waiting eight days, we were forced to convey our baggage, etc., over upon a raft, and then dragged the empty wagon across by means of two spans oxen. By the 21st of March, his party had arrived at Mkomas River, just south of Port Natal, and on the 22nd of March, he met Henry Francis Finn, who guided them to the little port settlement. In the afternoon, Finn gave us an opera, with dancing executed by several hundred Zulu and their wives. Their gesticulations were warlike, the singing was more agreeable than any we previously heard from Amakosa, and they kept time very well. These were all Zulu inhabitants of Finn's Kral, and the Drej brothers called them his property. Also well met was James Collis, who had set up his farm a short distance from the port, and the Kaywood family. They had travelled overland from Grahamstown to set up their vast farms in what would become known as Natal. And they'd also been sending letters to relatives and the authorities, stressing the abundance of the region and how suitable it was for colonization. By the 28th of March, Finn was leading Smith as they travelled to Dingon's residence. We know from the Germans' notes that they crossed the Tugela on the 2nd of April and had a great deal of trouble avoiding the crocodiles lying on sandbars and the little islands. They were welcomed by the Zulu Indunas on the way, and while they travelled, Smith was summing up the opportunities. The country travelled over yesterday and today, he wrote on the 3rd of April, consisted of ridges and intervening valleys with here and there some very deep kloofs, and these clothed with quantities of wood and supplying abundance of water. They reached Mgungunglovu, just south of the White Mfalosi, a day later, and had their first interview with Dingon. He was dealing with his rainmakers when they arrived, and had accused them of deceiving him. Smith and the Germans dotted down their thoughts how the rainmakers had asked Dingon for black oxen because those would help make it rain, but it remained dry. So he called them back, and then the rainmakers asked for white oxen. It did not rain again, so he called them back once more, and the Sangomas said that the drought persisted because some people had taken away their power. 
Who did this? asked Dingon, and they pointed out four men. Dingon had them killed. Now our power must exist again, he said, but warned them that if it didn't rain soon, he'd have them killed instead. Smith's notes concentrated on cultural things. Most of these, however, were lifted from Farewell's diary and discussions with Finn. They were missing his so-called scientific analysis, the very reason for the expedition. Smith's party remained at Dingaan's kraal for a few days, then set off home. On their way back, the Germans described their descent towards Port Natal. In the evening, we drove for two hours towards the bay in John Kane's house. He lives with a Hottentot woman who is childless, and with a black woman by whom he has had several children. We are now one hour from the beach. So we learn very little from the diaries of these folks on this crucial expedition funded as it was by the British government. However, it was when Andrew Smith arrived back in Cape Town months later that things began to move and provided us with a clue about what was really going on. Barry, the half-Boer, half-Brit, began to circulate glowing accounts of the Wonderland in the north, the green rolling hills of Zululand. Smith recounted the amazing herds, the flowing rivers, the verdant countryside. For the Cape Town merchants, this was confirming what they'd already heard from the likes of Finn, Farewell, King, and others. It was quite natural for these merchants to be interested in Port Natal, as many had already funded some of the ships that had dropped anchor in the bay and returned with ivory and skins. At meetings in the local drinking houses, these merchants thought it was high time to overcome the British government's refusal to fund a settlement in Natal. As you'll hear in the future, a meeting was to be held in 1833 at the Commercial Exchange in Cape Town, where Dr. Andrew Smith and Captain William Eady, amongst others, were invited to address the committee of the exchange about opportunities around Port Natal. News of this meeting reached Grahamstown, and there was a ripple of excitement that ran through the merchant class there too. They had shot out the game around both towns, and these exports of Africa's basic animal resources now needed new supplies of ivory and skins. While this was causing some excitement, things were happening at a place called Neisner. This retreat for the well-heeled of the 21st century South Africa has quite a history. In the mid-1820s, a turbulent member of the Irish party of the 1820 settlers had made a claim to be located at Neisner, pretending he had an order from His Majesty King George IV. He was disappointed when the Cape Colonial Secretary at the time, our old friend Mr. Bird, rejected his claim, saying there was in fact no private property to be had in Neisner. Then, just to kick the Irishman in the teeth, the colonial authorities decided to create a naval settlement there and gave the cession of 80 acres to someone by the name of George Rex. He was apparently linked to the royal family. At least, that was his story. The Cape government had been eyeing the interesting narrow gap they called the Heads for some time, lying below the steep Otaniqua Mountains. It was forested, an ideal place to build ships, an excellent source of timber. Local Koiko called the area Klaakma, which means place of wood. Naizna is what we call it today. George Rinks had made his way there earlier in the 19th century and discovered 
that the grass was soot-felt, sweet all year round. It rained a lot more there than virtually anywhere else on the entire coast. By 1830, the area was known throughout the colony, and many officers based in the east around Grahamstown and Algoa Bay loved travelling to Nisner for a bit of R&R. And of course, in those days, rest and recreation could go on for weeks, or perhaps months. Another who spent time here was someone by the name of Dr. James Barry. Ms. Barry, if you remember, the woman who masqueraded as a man for over 70 years, but was a pioneer doctor long before the agitation for women's rights. The slaves living at George Rex's home called Malthout Kral called her Dikapok Noinki, cotton wool lady. She didn't fool them either. That's because they spotted she padded her clothes with cotton wool or kapok to appear more manly. In 1830, Captain Thomas Henry Doothy arrived for his stint of getting away from it all and proceeded to shoot animals like there was no tomorrow. He headed off into the Nasna forests and bagged bushbuck, steenbuck, kreisbuck, bluebuck, diker, hares, partridge, pheasant, pow, kurhan, quail, bustards. In fact, anything that moved appeared to be a target. Luris and golden cuckoos too. On November 22nd, two days after he arrived, he shot two chrespok, one bluebuck, a bushbuck, then killed a large kingfisher. And after dinner, he and the rest of the officers played board games. The next day, they headed down to the beach and hunted sharks, then had a lovely dance until 2 a.m. the following morning, a snapshot of a holiday, if you like. By now, the crossing of the infamously dangerous sandbar in Nisner had been achieved. The first vessel crossing the bar in 1817, and from then on ships would travel to Nisner to stock up on timber destined for the naval yard at Simonstown. The coming of the 1820 settlers led to a pilot station being set up temporarily, but after 1827 there was no pilot sent, and the mariners had to look after themselves until 1858. The good ship Nisner was built in the Nisner Lagoon starting in 1826 when her keel was laid, and she sailed on her first voyage with a cargo of timber for Cape Town in July 1831. The Nasna was still sailing around the English coast in 1873. Possibly one of the more interesting voyages was to Mauritius in September 1832, carrying a cargo of produce and merchandise. This included Irish pork, cheese, oats, and hundreds of hats, along with butter, tallow, pickled pork and beef, salted tongue, sausages, a case of hams and bacon, raisins, walnuts, almonds, bags of beans, barley and mealies, and over 100 kilograms of biltong. There were also 150 live fowls, 32 turkeys, 30 geese, 10 ducks, 6 muscovies, and guinea fowls, and the entire cargo was going to be exchanged for sugar, coffee, and rattans. But it was its next big trip that was going to be far more important. In 1836, when it was going to carry food to the Buffalo River for British troops sent to deal with the latest frontier war. The problem was, no ship had ever entered the Buffalo River, which is modern-day East London. So, next episode, we'll return to hear what was going on along the frontier. A new governor, Sir Benjamin Durbin. Yes, another veteran of the Peninsula campaign against Napoleon. He would arrive to face a frontier war that was particularly vicious. Coming so soon after a shocking report from Delagoa Bay, where Dingaan's impi had just raided 
and driven the Portuguese authorities offshore onto an island. The Cape authorities were hit with a double whammy, which appeared to test their power in Southern Africa. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, there's an email form on the website desmondlatham.blog or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.